Okay, just before Wayne comes to speak, there is a longish Bible reading. Um, we did discuss it this morning. We've cut it down a little bit. So I'll just fill you in on the story. But you might want to open up to Acts chapter 10. Uh, just to remind yourself of this story. It's a well-known story. It's about a... Well, it starts with a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And God hears his prayer, sends an, an angel, speaks to him, said, I've heard your prayer, Cornelius. Now you, you need to send someone to such and such a place where this guy called Simon Peter is and, to, you know, present yourself to him. And they do. And in the meantime, Peter's having this vision. You remember? He's having this vision. He's gone up into the top of the house for some prayer. And uh, on the vision, he, um, he sees these... Um, all sorts of animals and reptiles and birds that are unclean. And the Lord says, oh, pick what you want to eat. And he says, no, I can't do that. And then the whole situation is that Peter, while he's puzzling over this vision, these guys arrive and Peter puts it together. Wow. The Lord says, you're not to call unclean anything that I don't call unclean. And, of course, he's talking about the Gentiles. So we'll pick up from verse 34 here. Because Peter uh, says to them, I see very clearly, this is this group that have come from Caesarea, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Acts 11. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Now we're crossing over to Galatians 2 verses 11 to 6. Now this is Paul speaking. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, in other words, from Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insist on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Second Peter 3, verses 14 to 16. This is Peter again. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. And this will result in their destruction. Thank you very much, Julie. I thought it was really important to read those three kind of scenes because I want to tackle the issue that leadership is complex. That's what I want to speak about today as we have this... Um, <laughs> people in the front row are laughing and saying experienced in that you're going really leadership's complex isn't it easy it's very easy when you're not uh, the res not carrying the responsibility and um so here we go we've got this three sort of scenes in in this if you like a leadership play it's not really that but in this in the life of peter and paul and their interaction and the thing that i really want you to go away with today is that leaderships is an ongoing life formation process no one comes to leadership as the complete package no one becomes the complete package even while they're still alive 
But there are key things that we look for when we are wanting to appoint people and not just when we want to appoint them into leadership roles within the ministries of New Life Church, but also there are things that we keep measuring them by. We keep, so we use this as a measure to appoint people and we use this as a measure to continue to evaluate all of our leaders and particularly the ones that were up the front of here earlier today. Now, this next statement is going to surprise some of you. I've been involved in Christian leadership for more than 40 years and some of you are surprised by that. I was a naive 16-year-old when I volunteered to be the youth leader for the youth group in my church, which was for the 16s and over. I was 16. No one else was wanting to put their hands up for it. I was like, I'll do it. I was told by the church, church leadership, and probably appropriately, I didn't, that I was too young to do it by myself and that I should have someone older help me. I had a good friend in those days who was, happened to be five years older than me. So I said to him, let's do it together. He said, yes, I did bulk of the work, but we did it together and it worked. Since then, I've served in a, in a multitude of leadership roles and Julie has a similar history to mine. In 1996, our family went to live in California so that I could do a master's degree in Christian leadership development at Fuller Theological Seminary. And in September of 1997, Julie and I started this church, New Life Church. A few years later, in 2002, we were asked to adopt Calvary Christian School, which is now Fremantle Christian College. In 2003, we founded the Jubilee Welfare Fund. And over the course of our lives, we have learned a lot of leadership lessons. And we've made a lot of mistakes. We've got things wrong and we've got things right. But also during our lifetime, we have sadly seen the rise and the fall of many Christian leaders. You see, not every Christian leader finishes honorably, sadly. Do you know that even in the Bible... Only about one-third of the leaders who are named in the Bible lived God-glorifying lives all the way to the end. Someone's done a real study on this. My leadership professor at Fuller had done a study on this. Only about one-third of leaders mentioned in the Bible lived a God-glorifying life all the way to their death. That's, that's really quite sobering, isn't it? That should, that should, first of all, that should be sobering. Secondly, it should be like, okay, we ought not to be surprised today if Christian leaders end up trashing their lives, for want of a better word, um, and finishing poorly. Approximately one third of Christian leaders are disqualified by public sin. So one third finish well, one third are disqualified by public sin and another third, they just kind of limp along, compromised, emotionally wounded or discouraged. So they don't, they don't finish powerfully, if you like, in God, but they, they retire and they go and live a retirement life. There's only one third of leaders that serve God wholeheartedly to the end. And Julie and I have made a commitment 
that we want to be in that third. And we want the leaders that we're able to influence to be in that one third. And so we continually call ourselves to wholeheartedness and we continue to call the people of this church and the leaders of this church to wholehearted love and devotion to Jesus. You might be thinking, what happens to all of those Christian leaders that, that set off with, with great hopes and dreams of how God will use them and how they'll transform the world? And if you said to them, well, in t- 10 years' time, 30 years' time, your life will be dishonouring Christ. They'd be like, no way, no way. How does that happen? And the answer is this. Christian leadership's complex. It's complex. It's a mix of you and God. As someone once said, not all the energy, not all the fuel in your fuel tank, Wayne, is from the Holy Spirit. And so you have, you have to go on this journey of discovery of like, well, which, how much of my motivation is actually truly for the glory of God or is it actually about me proving myself? It's complex. How much of my responses are my emotions working themselves out because someone said something to hurt me and I'm in pain and I want to speak back to them, even if I quite a, quote a Bible verse? Leadership is complex. It's multi-layered. I've got to manage myself as, as an individual. And some of you struggle at that level. You know, if you want to be a leader, the first place you start is lead yourself. You are the hardest person you will ever have to leave, lead, believe me. If you don't know that, once you, once you have led yourself to perfection, then start working on other people around you. It's complex. It's, and that's true in Christian schools. It's true in churches and it's true in mission state organizations so and believe me the stakes are very high for a leader who's working to fulfill God's purposes the stakes are high and the cost is high for themselves and their families particularly the high level leaders that stood in front of you today they carry a weight of responsibility and authority that impacts them as an individual and impacts their family and in ways as well that you don't ever see. But when leaders sin or make poor decisions or they get the process wrong or they misuse their power or authority, unfortunately many lives can get damaged, including their own. And so leaders have to discern their personal desires from God's purposes. So in 1995, after being in pastoral ministry for 10 years, I saw significant gaps in my capacity to develop Christ-like leaders. And it was the desire to close those gaps that eventually led me uh, to take my family and study at Fuller Seminary under a world-renowned PhD missionary professor who taught me from the Bible how God develops leaders over their lifetime. It was a very expensive time and it was an invaluable time that we've never regretted. I wouldn't be who I am today without it and New Life Church wouldn't have the culture that we have without it. That time really was like finding the pearl a great price. Now using what I learned from Bobby Clinton and others, 
I've developed a test that we use to select leaders, and it's called the 5C Test of Leadership, and it's on the screen behind me. It's got five pillars, and and we ideally want all, all the pillars the same height. They're the pillars of character, competency, chemistry, courage, and calling. And to, to qualify for appointment, particularly into governance and senior leadership roles, a le- person has to pass all five tests. So I'll just take them quickly one by one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I am going to spend a bit of time on the first one because it's, the re- it's really the essential one. It's the one of character. Now this comes from 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1 Timothy 3 verses 2 to 7 and Titus 1 6 to 9. Paul has an extensive list for the church about what to, he's speaking to Timothy and he's speaking to Titus. He says, when you want to appoint people into leadership roles, here's what you look for. And when you look through those lists in the Bible, you see essentially it's all about character. So character is critical. Now I was thinking about today and I thought, I think I'll try to summarize it with an acrostic. And so here's my shot at that. Character is spelt faith. So faithful, above reproach, integrity, teachable, and humility. So that was my best shot at trying to say, what's character? Because character is this multifaceted thing. And how do you put some handles around it? So let's start with faithful. First of all, we're looking for people who are faithful to God. If they're married, they want to be, they've got to be faithful to their spouse, faithful to their family. They've got to be trustworthy. They, their word has to, be, has to carry weight. And even simple things, for example, if that person says, yes, I'll be there, are you coming today? Yes, I'm coming today. They show up. Or they send you a message or they make a call to say, look, something's happened. My life has collapsed into a turmoil I'm sick, I'm on my deathbed, I'm sorry I won't be able to make it. They just don't not show up. Also, faithful, they're faithful to replying to invitations. RSVP date. Yes, they RSVP. They reply to emails. Like, this is basic, fundamental faithfulness, everybody. (laughs) Like, so, if you're going, pick me for a leader, you need to know that's the first thing I'm coming at. Do you reply to my messages, my phone calls, my text messages, my emails? They're not just mine, but other people. Do you show up when you say you're going to show up? Are you on time? That's another thing. Be faithful. You be faithful in little things, Jesus said, and you get entrusted with bigger responsibilities. You know, you've got to nail the small things. Someone once said, if you want to change the world, start making your bed every day before you leave the house. You will feel good because you'll have at least accomplished one thing that day. And when you come home at the end of the day, doesn't matter what's happened outside the house, you'll be able to look at your bed and go, well, at least I got that bit right. <laughs> at least I started the day well. Okay? Don't go out to change the world if you haven't made your bed. All right. Above reproach. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Paul says, hey, if someone desires to be in a leadership responsibility in the bottom body of Christ, that's a great thing. And so start with they should be above reproach. In other words, if you sniff around them, there isn't even a hint of an aroma of anything that dishonors Christ. There's no hint that they ever deceive or mislead people. 
You see, this is, you, we look at the life of Daniel and you see this, right? Daniel chapter 6, where he ends up in the lion's den. You see, the people who he works with that don't like him, they can't find fault with his work or anything that he's done. So they have to trump up this charge against him that he's praying to the wrong God. That's what we mean by the above reproach. When people accuse you and speak evil of you, there's nothing that sticks to you. Now, sometimes that is challenging. But that's the goal that you're going for. It's one of the reasons why often in in leadership situations, when people speak against us as a church, we don't defend ourselves. Because we just keep going and pursuing Christ. Because we are confident that we're living above reproach. And people, people sooner or later see that for what it is when you live consistently and faithfully. Integrity, this is very much that this person always does what's right. Right by, according to what God says. But right by people as well. But it's ultimately right by God. That's a person of integrity. They pay their bills on time, all those kind of things. They, they act with integrity. They're teachable. They learn to receive correction. Number one thing, you want to be in leadership, you've you got to understand, you've got to receive correction from a number of sources, some that you'll welcome and some that you won't welcome. If you can't receive correction, if, you, if you're not teachable, you will never make it in a leadership circle at a leadership level. And uh, you saw that in the excerpts that were written to us from the life of Peter. Humility, the final one, they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought. They don't think less of themselves than they ought either. Some people mistakenly think that humility is like constantly putting yourselves down. It's not. It's going, no, I don't think more highly of myself than I ought, but I don't think less than myself than what Christ thinks of me either. I'm walking in that place. I don't have all the answers, but I have something to contribute. But humility also means that I can let go of a position. I can be tapped on the shoulder and be told, it's time, Wayne, for you to leave New Life Church and hand over the leadership to someone else. For example, that's not happening right now. (laughs) Just in case any of you are wondering. But it also means if you're in leadership responsibility within your life church or even in the school, that you can be tapped on the shoulder by the people in authority over you and say, look, we think it's time. Humility is saying, my identity is not in this position. And so I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve the people around me. It's not, I don't need to be doing this position to make myself feel good about myself I'm doing this for the well-being of the mission and the ministry of Christ and others and just like Jesus laid aside this Philippians 2 5 to 11 Jesus the son of God the glorious eternal one that we sang to he willingly laid aside his divinity and humbled himself and became a man Jesus is our example in humility so we can do that all right so So when we are looking to appoint people into leadership roles, the first question, the very first question that we ask is, does this person have the character 
needed for the level of responsibility that they and authority that they're going to carry. That's number one. Okay. Now that's the long one. The others will be shorter. Secondly, we look for competence. Um, so we'll go back to the pillars. Thank you very much. Well done. Because uh, every every leadership role demands a certain level of competence. You've got to be able to do certain stuff. That's why we're. That's why leaders get appointed to do certain things. So. Uh, you've got to have competence and we, you don't get put into a position if, if you don't demonstrate the competence that you can actually do what's required. Um, most of you hope that works in your workplace, don't you? You know, you hope that the, you know, you hope that the people you work with got the job because they can do the job. When you take your mechanic, your car to a mechanic, you hope they've got the competency to do the job. When you go to see a doctor, you hope they've got the competency to do the job. It doesn't, doesn't matter, you know. The list, the list is endless. Competency. So, so we say, so we go, does this person have the skills necessary for the role? Competency. Chemistry. You know, when you mix chemicals, uh, you get a reaction. And um, I've, I've mixed a few chemicals when I was in high school um, and sometimes got reactions that weren't what was expected. And, uh, but no, no, nothing, all the buildings are still standing. So it's good. But, uh, so when you understand, when you're bringing people into a team, you're going to, you're mixing, you're mixing things. So you want to go, does this, per- if we bring this person into the team, how is that going to, that chemistry of that person interact? Right? And so, for example, someone who, already has existed for rubbing people up the wrong way all the time is probably not going to get invited into a team to do that, right? You understand what I'm saying? Okay? We're not, going, we're not inviting someone in to destroy the relationships within this team. So chemistry is, is third. So, so here's how we think about it. Here's, oh, certainly I do. You think to yourself, does this person have the emotional and relational maturity for the role? Do they have some self-awareness and understanding? Are they able to govern their emotions? What happens? In, how do they respond in conflict is a really good test. It's one of the things I encourage engaged couples to do is to have a fight. Oh, seriously, because conflict shows you what's going to come out of a person. So before we appoint people into senior leadership roles, we want to see how they've gone in a conflict situation. We don't artificially create one. In a church, you don't need to. <laughs> they, they just happen. So we're asking the question, is this person going to enhance or damage the relational fabric of the team. Fourth C is courage. It's the ability to enter in and have difficult exchanges, defend the faith, Christian community, in a way that deepens love in the hearts of people. This is a really challenging one. Does this person able to go and have hard or crucial conversations in a Christ-honouring manner? that demonstrates the character of God and disciples peoples in the ways of Jesus. My first taste of this 
was was the earliest one I can think of is probably about 1987. I'm 23 years of age. I'm a leader with I'm an, a youth pastor at the church part time that I grew up in. So all of the adults know me from from mostly from when I was a baby. They watched me grow up, and now I'm in a leadership role. I'm sitting in a room with 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 my dad and other men and women, my dad's age, 1987. A conversation is being had. Um, if you like, it's a review of the, the senior pastor. And people are saying things they should not be saying in a meeting because they've not ever said them privately to the senior pastor. They are fault-finding it was terrible. I had to speak to my dad afterwards and confront him because I was embarrassed by the way that he spoke and other people. Now, these are people who I've looked up to. So this whole thing of can you step into, you know, or do you walk away from, do you just go, oh, too hard, not my job, I'm too young, or whatever it might be. Leaders have to have courage you're going to have to face things that you don't want to face. You're going to have to do things you don't necessarily want to do, but you have to do them for the good of the mission and the culture in the organization. So one of the questions I'm looking for is, where have I seen this person act with courage? Do they have crucial conversations in their home? This is a key thing. Do they have them already in their home? When they talk about their work or their, and their employers or their supervisors, their bosses, do they whinge and complain about them or do they talk about, I tried to go and speak to them and I, didn't get, I got this kind of response. It's that kind of thing. Where do they show courage? We cannot have people in leadership within the body of Christ, within Christian colleges, who do not have courage to step into situations and to put boundaries in place. The fifth C is calling, and this is this this is the sense of this reality that I sense God's calling to this role. This isn't just an idea. This isn't just a whim. This is a sense of like God is actually calling me to this. And I submit that to, to the test of others to say, could this possibly be God? The thing about it is, trouble comes to leaders. It just comes. If you've never been in a leadership role, you probably won't know what I'm talking about. But leaders you just get in trouble trouble comes to you troubled people come to you and if you don't have a conviction in your spirit that God said to do this this wasn't my idea I mean you know I said yes to it but it's an assignment from God right so ultimately an assignment from God and so because when the pressure comes on you you go, God, this was your idea, God. So you're going to have to find a way, you're going to have to show me a way through this. Because I feel like running away right now, because this is painful and terrible and difficult, and you're going to have to show me. 
I won't give you any examples, but there have been times in, in years gone past where the pressure has been so intense on me as the lead pastor of this church and overseeing the school that I've been curled up in a fetal position in my office, crying out to the Lord, saying, God, take me now, Lord. I'm serious. Like the pressure, so intense. It's like, God, this was your idea. I didn't do any of this. You have to make a way. And every single time, God's made a way. And he's strengthened me in that place. Strengthened me in my spirit. Strengthened me to be able to do what's needed. So that's the 5C test of leadership. The character, the competency, the chemistry, the courage and the calling. And that's the test that we give before we appoint a leader. But it's also the test that we continue to apply to our leaders. It frames the conversation. When we need to discipline a leader, we sit down with them. We go, there's the grid. This is where we're doing. How's it going? Because leadership is complex. Let's go back to Peter and Paul in this interaction. And this is where I'll be landing in a few minutes. So you go back to Acts 10, right? The, the messianic movement has been birthed. The Holy Spirit has been poured out in Jerusalem on Jewish believers. And, it, but, and they've been given an assignment to take the message of the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of the world, take it to the ends of the earth and to make disciples. So then Acts 10, Peter's up on the roof praying. He has this vision. He has this powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. God speaks very clearly to him. He knows that. That changes the way that he views Gentiles. Like, you're not a Jew, so you, and nor am I. So we don't understand how big a shift this is. And so then he goes willingly with a group that's come from Cornelius, and he willingly enters a Roman. He goes into an Italian's house. I've got some Italians in the audience as well. <laughs> They're looking at me. <laughs> so from your perspective, it's not a big deal. From a Jewish perspective, it is huge. It is huge. So, and he goes there and they go, we've come to hear the message that you've got. He begins to speak. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin to speak in languages they haven't learned, just as what happened in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. And Peter's like, what on earth is God doing? But he realizes what God's doing. And he reports it back to the church. But he first of all cops a, a lot of criticism when he goes back because... Leadership is complex. They weren't there to see it. He has to explain it to them. right? But then they all go, wow, that's amazing, Peter. God's at work. Praise God. You think, wow, case closed. <laughs> then Galatians 2, um, Paul comes to Antioch. I think it's Antioch. I can't remember. Sorry. And what he sees, he's staggered. Now you can read the back, you can go and read all this for yourself. So here's Peter, lead apostle of the whole movement, and he's changing his behavior because some guys have come from Jerusalem putting pressure on him, and he's caved. Like, what's happened to the vision, the sheet, all that? You go, what's happened, Peter? Where did that go? 
You see, leadership's complex. Sometimes you're having a good day and sometimes you're not having such a good day. Sometimes you cope really well with the pressure. Other days you don't cope so well with the pressure. They put pressure on Peter. Peter changes his behaviour, right? He stops eating with people that aren't circumcised. Those of you who don't know what that is, you can look that up. (laughs) And other disciples of Jesus follow Peter's example. They also... So now you've you've got groups who are supposedly all disciples of this Messiah, Jesus, but now you've got a Jewish group eating over here and the non-Jews eating over here. And Paul looks at this and goes, this is a disaster. If I let this take root, this whole thing is going to be a disaster, not just for now, but for for a long time to come. This separation of Jews and non-Jews, because we're one in Messiah. And he writes a lot about that is letters. And so what does Paul, what does Peter Paul do, he does what a good leader does, acts with courage and he, has to, he knows because this is a public sin, he has to confront Peter publicly and he rebukes him publicly and Peter repents and changes his behaviour and the whole messianic movement gets back on track with Jews and Gentiles filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues together under Christ. That's what happens. Now, I know that Peter responded well to that because 2 Peter 3, Peter's humbled himself, changed his behavior. And when he writes to the people, he says, Paul, our beloved brother. That's a big statement. This guy rebuked him publicly. Peter walked with Jesus. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, but Peter was the one who actually lived and travelled with him for three years and saw, saw him as resurrected as well. And he says, Paul, our beloved brother, writes with wisdom from God. Now, all that's to say a couple of things. Every leader who sins publicly, then, which causes other people to sin should be rebuked publicly for the health of the church or in the case of the school, the health of the school or, the, or in a mission organisation, the same thing. Now there's a misapplication of 1 Samuel 24 and Chronicles and Psalm 105 in some parts of the body of Christ where the phrase don't touch the Lord's anointed is used. And it's a misquotation from those scriptures, you can look look it up. But often that's used, and sometimes it's used by leaders as a way to silence people. It's an inappropriate use of scripture for any Christian leader to wield as a weapon against people speaking correction to them. Because what it's actually talking about is killing someone. It's not speaking about correcting because when you read the passage, you see the context is David and Saul. And Saul is harassing David as the king. And David says, I refuse to touch the Lord's anointed. What he means by that is I refuse to kill him. Killing is God's job, not mine. But David does rebuke Saul for his sins And David had a confidence that he would ultimately be vindicated by God. And God had appointed and anointed David as well by this time. 
but that God would deal with Saul as the Lord's anointed. It's very important to understand that. You're mixing with other people. We never use that phrase. You don't hear that in New Life Church, but I know you hear it other places in the body of Christ where people talk about that. It's a misappropriate use of Scripture to say that leaders can't be corrected. They can and they must be corrected. And the example of, of Paul and Peter shows us that. Now, there's an equal, there's a sort of a flip side of that one. I can see that's got some of you thinking. There's a flip side of that because there's the word shepherd is one of the biblical words that's used for God's leaders. And one of the biblical words for the people of God is sheep. So shepherd and sheep, you've got those dynamics going on. As a shepherd, one of the things that I've experienced many times is the pain, excruciating pain at times, of sheep bite. (laughs) I've got the scars to prove it. And I've also experienced the sting of a godly rebuke and the opportunity to humble myself and repent and change my behaviour and keep pursuing Christ. So we use, like I said, we use this 5C test because Christian leadership is complex and the stakes are too high not to. To test our leaders regularly against character, competency, chemistry, courage and calling. And as I finish today, I want to finish with a bit of a challenge. And first of all, I want to challenge leaders, and many of them are in the front rows here, but they're scattered around the room as well in different ways. I just want to challenge you all to again take the 5C test today. Evaluate yourselves. Test yourself. But also invite one or two people you trust to evaluate you on those five C's and to share their thoughts with you. People you know you can will give you some kind of objective opinion. For followers here, so people who are not in leadership responsibility, the things I want to encourage you to do today is to honour your leaders. That's what the scripture says. You honour them. There's an appropriate way to honour them. Pray for them daily, if not weekly, if you can't do daily, but pray for leaders. Forgive them. Leadership's complex and not always going to get everything right. But they are working hard to try to do that. And if necessary, correct them. Correct your leaders, but do it in the same way that Jesus corrects you. That's, what you, that's your goal, right? It's like, oh, I've got, to, I've got to sort that person out. I've got to sort that leader out. Okay, well, first we want to stop that. Train of thought right there and go, okay, how would Jesus do that? Okay, I'm going to do it the way Jesus does it. And finally, this is the final slide for all of us. This is what Paul says to us. Let's all press on to reach the end of the race, to finish well, to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. To be a church to be a school, where leaders finish well, 
But, but not just leaders, but we all finish well because we all go, I am pressing on. And if you know the context of Philippians 3, you'll know that he's, he's listed off a whole lot of things behind him. And he's going, I forget all that stuff. And I'm pressing on because I want Jesus. I want to end the race well. I want to receive the heavenly prize, the prize that Jesus has got for me. It's a great and a glorious prize. Fix your eyes on Jesus and the prize that he has. And that will enable you to keep going. Let's pray together. The worship team will come up. And those of you that are in leadership responsibilities, I just invite you to to speak out to the Lord again. Just say, Lord, search my heart. Test me and try me and see if there be any way that's offensive to you in me Lord I want to finish well I want to run the race with endurance just speak that out to the Lord so maybe as I've been speaking to others you're in this room this morning and perhaps there's a leader not necessarily in this church but somewhere else that has said or behaved in a way that's wounded you Just speak out right now your choice to to forgive them. And ask God for wisdom as to going and speaking to them or simply blessing them and moving on. Entrusting their judgment to God himself. Father in heaven, earlier today we were singing the song about Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. That's who you are. I'm asking you, Father, give us greater revelation of your holiness that captivates our hearts with who you are. And that enables all of us to live lives set apart for you and your purposes, whether we're in leadership or not. That our lives will reflect the fragrance of Christ, that we will carry his fragrance, his aroma. And that when people are around us, both believers and non-believers, they will smell the fragrance of Christ. So that he is honoured in all of our words and all of our behavior every day. Amen.